Hi, Ben. Hi, how's it going? Ah, it's been really good, actually. I've, been, I've really enjoyed this week, but it's been all a little bit seedy. A little bit seedy, isn't it? A little bit seedy. But that's the kind of thing that we kind of talk about this time of year, I reckon. Um, uh, my seediness is mainly wildflowery seediness, mm. but presumably you're, as a horticulturalist, you're um, you're looking for seeds this time of year, aren't you, to sort of like propagate? Yeah, so we've got um, a project we want to start soon uh, where we would supply sort of a huge list of seeds and sort of bring people through everything that they need to grow an allotment or a, a, enough food. Um, so we, we've come up with a seed list now, but we're just sort of looking at actually ordering those now. Um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time of year getting seeds in. It's okay. really fun. I mean, I've said before, I'm not, I'm not a very practical uh, grower, uh, but we've got on our windowsill at home some uh, quince. Uh, there's a quince tree in um, a local garden, and we drop loads of quinces, and uh, I'd love the smell of them. Thought we'd try and grow them, but we don't know what to do. So we just we brought them in, put them on our windowsill. They've all gone a bit black. When on earth do you plant things like that? How do you know about when's the right time to pick the seed to actually go and plant? Um, it's normally when the fruit is ripe. That's the, the best way to tell. So if um, if you've got a quince or a tree fruit, when it comes off the tree, the fruit is the seed is normally ripe. Yeah. Um, I'd take the seed out of the fruit. It's probably step number one. Yeah. You don't want to leave it in the fruit. It's quite moist in there. Is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, they could rot. But if you, if you pull them out of the fruit and then plant them into potting compost around that time of year, it's normally a good indicator. When the trees themselves are dropping the seeds, it's when the seeds are ready to go into the ground. So, uh, yeah, if, if you were to take the take the fruit and cut them open, get the seeds out, give them a bit of a clean, just some paper towel and shove them straight back into potting compost, you might see something happen. And when you're talking potting compost, uh, are you talking, uh, well, we don't do peat here, do we? So Ooh, no peat. Tell me a little bit about that, because it's always a little bit of a mystery to me, all this. Yeah, so, so peat for a long time was considered the best growing medium. Um, and for good reason, it's a fantastic growing medium. It's, it's really good at water retention. It's got great nutrient holding capabilities. But it is very damaging to the environment. Um, peat bogs are a huge carbon store. They're a huge water store. So what you find is when you start digging them up, you release carbon dioxide, you release greenhouse gases, but you also release water from the land, so you see increases in flooding. And it's just, all in all, it's not very good. Okay. Um, for a while, they were thinking about moving to sphagnum moss, which is the, the original ingredient for peat. But again, that grows so slowly, it's not sustainable. Um, but peat-free compost in the last few years have really come on. Um, coir tends to be the, the main component of them now, which is um, coconut husks. Oh, yeah. So it's a byproduct from the coconut oil industries and things like that. Um, it's not exactly the most sustainable because it does have to come in from the areas where they grow coconuts, but it's a waste project. Um, and it is good. It's it's very low nutrient though. So what I found growing in coir in the past is if I didn't um, feed the seeds once they've uh, germinated, they tend to just sit there because there is no nutrient in the coir at all. Okay. Um, is, is that what we use in the botanic garden? We use a company called Melcorp predominantly, okay. um, and they are a peat-free based compost. Um, I think they do have coir in their mix, but there's also things like... Um, ground up uh, rotted down wood bark and things like that there's yeah. a huge variety of materials you can use uh, there's a company called Dalefoot which I'm a big uh, fan of their compost and they use um, bracken and sheep wool that's that's fantastic oh, really? all of the materials are from you know from the UK and yeah Wales is not short on sheep and bracken oh. yeah. is, that, is that fresh bracken or is that uh, rotted bracken? I'm not sure on the uh, well it would, it would be rotted yeah. um, as a general rule always rotted uh, never put anything fresh onto the garden always rot it first um, but yeah I, I'm not sure what the treatment of the bracken is whether they cut it and then leave it sit and then 
mid-sets and put it into the compost, okay. or they just put it straight in. But it's it's lovely stuff. It's really nice. Do we sell this in the shop? The, um, um, we do. We sell a variety of big free compost down in the shop. Okay. Yeah. So that's something I should be giving a go then, yeah? Yeah, definitely. I, I really like Ripdale, but I think it's fantastic. But they're not the only company out there. Um, Melcorps do a very good peat free compost that we've used here for years. Petersons do them. Um, there are a number out there. Okay. And uh, so if I put my, uh, my quince seed into a bit of compost then, mm -hmm. uh, how long do I leave it in compost? When do I plant it in the garden? Um, well, once when you put it in the first compost, you'd be putting it in seeding compost, which is very well draining and very low nutrient. Um, once it's got to a decent size to handle, I would prick them out into a richer compost. Um, it's quite a delicate process. Don't hold the seedlings by the stem, hold them by the leaves. And you, you very gently put them into a, a bigger pot. You just pop them up until they're a decent size. As for putting it out into the garden, um, do it when it's a decent size, really, when, when you're confident it's not going to get broken or eaten. Okay. The thing with quince is you could take a cutting. You could take a hardwood cutting from hey, that's another. That's, that's another area I've never done a cutting in my life. Oh, they're quite which fun to do. But, um, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a bit of technicality behind it, but the, to give you in brief, um, cut a bit off, stick it in the ground. That's... It's what my nan's done for her entire life, and it works fantastically. Okay. But if you are going to take cuttings, have a look at the um, the side with the bit you're taking. Make sure it's fresh growth, this year's growth. Um, this time of year, you'll be looking for hardwood cuttings, which are hardened wood. Yeah. Um, and then have a look at it. You can see where the buds are. They're nodes. So if you cut just below one of those, and for the bottom of the cutting, and just above the top of the cutting, make it sort of six inches long, about okay. pencil thickness. And then rub the bud off the bottom, and just stick that into the ground. Roots are going to form from that. Rub the bottom. What does that like fray is? You can. Um, there's a couple of ways of doing it. I, I know uh, some people scar it, so they'll take a, a very sharp knife and just very lightly scratch the bottom. Um, I've always found that if you just use your fingernail and just rub the bud off, you, you don't want a leaf bud there because if there's a leaf bud there, the plant's going to try and grow a leaf. Yeah. Um, but if you rub that off, you release um, reveal cambium underneath, which is where all the stem cells for the plant are. And the plant then realises we haven't got any roots and turns them into roots. It's quite it's quite a cool way of doing them. Oh, I'm going to have to give this a go at some point. There yeah. are some plants which are really easy to do it with. So things like cornus and willow are just fantastically easy. Yeah, willow. You, I, I, now, willow, I, actually, I have bunged willow into a ground doing absolutely nothing and it's come up again. Yeah. In some respects, it's harder to not to take a cutting from willow. <laughs> um, okay. We've, we've used willow in the GTF garden for sort of low head uh, fencing between the beds. Oh, yeah. Um, and every year they, they root. They root and grow, even when we don't want them to. Okay. Uh, which is fantastic. Uh, willow is actually itself can be um, used as a rooting hormone. So you will see some um, websites and advisory manuals saying use a rooting hormone, yeah. uh, which is just a powder which contains the hormones of the plants, triggers them into growing roots. Um, I haven't had much success with it, but there is um, a way of turning willow into a rooting mixture where you, you take the fresh growth of it uh, and boil it up in water and it releases it, makes it like a tea, and then you dip your cuttings into that. And so I haven't had much success with it, but I haven't really done many trials with it, I haven't really practiced with I, it I, too much. Do you know, I've noticed in the uh, the wild willows, uh, and as, as I go for walks around here, I'm already starting to have little tiny buds appearing from the spring. Yeah. I'm always the optimist, I'm always looking for signs of spring, even in, in the middle of winter. And uh, I've also noticed it's the, the, the catkins are starting to come out on the... Uh, on the hazels, they start as a little white blob, and then they suddenly become a little catkin. Yeah, the catkins are also appearing on the older. Uh, it's great, isn't it? It's really exciting. All the 
all these little preparations happening for the spring are starting now. Yeah, I feel it's it's relatively short this year, this winter. We're quite late in the year, we're in December now, and it's it's not fantastically cold out here at the moment. Um, but we're, ne- we're nearly at the shortest day. We're, we're less yeah. than a month away from the shortest day, and then things are going to start getting longer and warming up. Do you know, though, um, when I uh, moved down here uh, 17, 18 years ago, I moved from, uh, from an, an urban area, and my winter seasons are so much shorter down here. It's not just climatic, because this is a slightly mild area of Wales, isn't it? Mm. But the, it's because we're outdoors, isn't it? And once you're outdoors, you're spotting so many different things that the idea of what is winter, that you should be all tucked up and not go out, isn't really the case because we're we're kind of out all the time anyway. So I, yeah, it's, so I, I I do wonder if it if it's climatic or it's just simply the way we uh, enjoy sure. ourselves. I mean, if you spoke to someone who lives in the Highlands of Scotland, they'd probably say that this isn't even winter at all. Um, no, that's true. I'm from Cornwall originally, that's where I grew up, and we had very mild winters. You know, very rarely saw any serious frosts or snow. Um, so to me, when I first came up here, winters up here were bitterly cold. I'm used to them now. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see sort of what people define as winter. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I was only chatting the other day to uh, a work colleague called Helen, who's running a project called the Dufferin Tawi Project, which is um, about uh, trying to preserve uh, landscape elements in the Tawi Valley, mm. which is the bit between Clandilo and Camarthen. And uh, we were talking a little bit about what makes this area special, because it's an area where we've got lots of parklands, uh, we've got a nearby uh, Arboretum at Gethley Eye, which is once considered one of the best in the, in the UK. And um, uh, wonderful veteran trees all around the place. And I'm doing a lot of work in meadows. I'll talk about that later, maybe. But the, um, she was saying that the whole valley runs from the southwest. So if you think about it, it comes from... So the weather is predominantly southwest. It kind of comes up from Transtefan, which is where the Tally Valley meets the sea. Yeah, and it kind of runs in the southwesterly direction. So maybe along this valley, uh, we we don't tend to get much snow. We don't tend to get as much ice as places just five miles away, which are much worse than here. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's microclimates. Um, on my drive into work every day, I come over at the top of a hill, and every single day, that the top of that hill is significantly colder than Ammonford, where I'm from. Oh, um, okay. And even then, um, my wife's parents um, they live in a place called Bryn Ammon, which is up near the Black Mountains. And again, it's significantly colder up there than right. Ammonford. And it's, it's a 10-minute drive, 15-minute drive. It's, it's really weird the way that the local weathering works. And it's, it's a very strange climate in this valley that we're here. And one of the treats here by coming in regularly is uh, from where we're sat on the science outside the science centre. And we can see on the hillside, or it's a bit misty today, uh, Paxton's Tower. Mm. And uh, Paxton's Tower often has a layer of mist just underneath it. Yeah. So it looks as if it's it's a civilization in the clouds, doesn't it? It's it's fantastic. We do get lots of low-lying mist here. And last week when we were recording the podcast, later in the day, I looked out the window and the mist was almost about a foot lower than the window. So it was really bizarre to see. You could just about make out the top of the Great Glass House and Paxton's Tower in the distance, but everything else was under a thick blanket of mist. So for, for you, uh, as as horticulturalist mm-hmm. uh, working here when you haven't got quite so much ice maybe um, you know um, we're looking over to our left here and we can see all the polytunnels where you, you gr- and, and the glass houses so you're growing an awful lot there for next summer already aren't you yeah the, the team's working growing an awful lot there 
um, for next summer. Cuttings are going in. There's stuff in the uh, nursery glass houses for the great glass house, things like that. Um, yeah, it's 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 strange. The, the obviously the warmer the winter, the less heating that needs to go on. Yeah. Um, you try to keep them above freezing, um, but at the same time, ice is ice is a real issue. Snow is better. Snow is insulative. So if, if you get a thick, heavy layer of snow, the ground underneath is is likely to be insulated. But if you were to get ice, that ice is going to permeate straight into the ground and freeze everything. So it's it's quite a strange balance, really. Obviously, from a working point of view, I'd rather it never froze. But freezing is important for dealing with pests and things like that as well. So. Yeah, I think it's, it feels a healthier environment when you've had a little bit of a, a, a an icy spell during the winter when it comes into spring. It sort of cleans the air a bit, doesn't it? It feels like that. It's a bit like the first heavy rains in summer. Yeah. All the dust in the air, then there's a heavy rain, and it's just completely new and clean. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm talking about seedy business is that um, uh, we've been collecting a lot of wildflower seeds from our Wildlife National Nature Reserve this year. Uh, it's the first year we've done it, and uh, we're now actually... Uh, putting that seed back into the ground in different places. And um, uh, the great news is that we, we collected uh, a whole load of meadow seed. So we use this thing called a brush harvester. And uh, my colleague, uh, Rebecca, drove a little quad bike and uh, and, collect, and that has kind of this little funny little device at the back, which collects all the seed heads from our wildflower-rich meadows. And that wildflower seed mix, I think, is now sold out, which yes. is great. So that's the first year we've done it. I'm really pleased to see that. But we've also been collecting um, uh, uh, individual seeds, uh, individual species from across wine last, and um, we're now planting them in different places. And I've been down to uh, a nearby a wonderful park to here called Deneva Park, which is in Flandilo. And uh, Deneva Park have got big uh, grassland areas, uh, which have got quite a lot of yellow rattling, and, and red clover, but not much. Mm. So we're actually introducing some of our wildflower seed there. Uh, we've got two apprentices for this stuff from Towing Project, project and they've um, created little seed plots in, in Deneva Park. And I went over to have a look at them yesterday. Mm. I can't wait to see what happens. Because, uh, and we've had to do it before all the ice gets here. This is a long way of saying that some of our seeds do need a good old freeze yeah. to sort of kick in. What's that process called? It's it's um it's an evolutionary trait really. It, it stops the seeds from growing and then the new growth being damaged by the frost. Um, a lot of seeds you'll find actually, especially from this sort of environment and colder, require that um, the sort of to break dormancy. Um, you can do that artificially through a process called uh, stratification, where you basically put your seeds in the fridge, then out the fridge, then in the fridge, and just do that fluctuation of temperature. Okay. Um, but the 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 premise behind it is it stops the seeds from germinating and then being damaged by the early frost. So if the seeds have a way of being able to identify the frost have now finished, we've been through that frosted period, now we can start growing and the chances of a late frost is much, it, it's slimmer. Obviously there are going to be some that are lost to frost, late frost and things like that, but the chances of survival until the next generation is much greater. Um, you see that in all sorts all over the world. So a lot of the Mediterranean plants actually require smoke treatment. So oh, it, the ones in the great glass, actually. Yeah, so yeah. instead of having a frost to germinate, they require a fire. So a, a naturally occurring fire will clear the air, it will provide a thick layer of very nutritious ash, uh, but also open up the forest to light so the seeds can then germinate and have a better chance to grow. Obviously, fire is dangerous, so in the modern day, we tend to 
try and control that. But then what you see happening is, is the larger prize. But even then, fire is, it's a great rejuvenator of forest land. Um, so it's, that's one of the things that they have. They, they require the smoke, they require the, the chemicals in the smoke and the fire to germinate. So, so go on, so you're growing on a lot of uh, plants, well, not you personally, but no. the team are doing it. Uh, people like Asia. Asia and Carl, yeah. And Carl are doing it. And um, so um, how do they reproduce the uh, the effects of fire when they are trying to get their seeds to germinate? So Carl is the, the head of propagation for the NGs, and he does the majority of the, the sort of fire treatments. Um, so you can buy these little things uh, called smoke solution, which is just a water-based solution which has those chemicals in it. So you'd soak the seeds in that. Alternatively, um, in some cases, especially with some of the seed pods that we've collected here ourselves, to get the seeds out, you end up actually having to take a blowtorch to them. Um, yeah, the, the, oh, really? the fire actually opens the seed heads. You see it in pine cones. I uh, don't know if you've ever put a pine cone in the oven and it's all opened out. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. So in, in some pine trees, they require that fire to open the seeds to allow the seeds then to know the air's clear, you can grow now. Um, so quite often, there's a little tin and you'll... you'll Sometimes, if you're walking around the back of the NGs, you'll see Carl bending down, blowtorching some seeds to get them to open the heads. Um, I've got to get a bit of film of that. Yeah, it's, it's quite fun to see. Once the seeds are out, we tend to use smoke treatment. So obviously, setting a blowtorch to actual seeds is a bit, bit risky. I like it. Yeah. Good theatre. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how they would uh, do the smoke treatment. Yeah. Because last year, there was... Um, in 2018, it was exceptionally hot here, wasn't it? It was so the, blistering, yeah. Yeah, and I remember going into the Great Glass House once in the middle of the summer. I was doing something, I can't remember what now. And um, I was absolutely pouring with sweat, and I realised there was no one else in there, and I thought, some weird thing is happening, uh, maybe a fire alarm or something. Of course, it was just because it was 45 centigrade in there. Yeah. yeah. Everyone was legging out. But the um, one of the legacies I noticed, or might have been related, I don't know, is the grass trees in Western Australia, those big, big clumps of just what looked like grass mm. suddenly shot out these huge Flowers flowering fire. heads, which were, I don't know, 10 foot high. And mm. in all my years being here, I've never seen them flower before. Is that the heat? I, I would probably put it down to the heat, yes. Um, the fact that we had such high temperatures, and I think in, in the height of the Australia area, if we reached 47 degrees in there, it was... 47? It was very, very warm. Um, but due to that high heat, I imagine that a lot of the plants then went, oh, that's summer. And then they've gone to seed after that. So we did. We saw the, the grass trees flowering. We had a, a brilliant year for that, the great glass house that year. Fantastic yeah. flowering display. And it, and it got pretty hot this year, didn't it, in, in uh, May and June as well. So presumably that's yeah. having an effect. I don't well. know the exact figures, but I think we were 43, 44. So not quite 47, but yeah, still a bit too warm to be comfortable in. <laughs> um, and yeah, again, we've had lovely brilliant flowering this year quite often we'll get to sort of those temperatures but 2018 was a peak year that was that was particularly bad along with the I think it was six weeks without any serious rainfall so a lot of the outside areas the Mediterranean plants on the outside had a, a good hot dry spell as well which they whether they relished but it's definitely done good for them now my sort of main day job is say is doing interpretation here which is um, just uh, just giving stories out to visitors effectively and um, I'm redoing the, uh, the panels that are on the side of the, uh, the concourse inside the Great Glass House. So um, it gives me a great excuse to sort of like review and think again about uh, what's special about the building and the plants. Mm. And uh, we're putting a big emphasis this year in letting people know what exactly is a botanic garden. Because I think um, 
there's a really big difference between what just a botanic garden and a nice little garden to go and visit. Yes. And maybe we can get to that all the time. But one thing um, it's reminded me uh, only this week is uh, just certain little features about the Great Glass House, which I think are really fascinating, which I kind of forget about, then I remember again, then I forget about. Mm. Um, and just the fact, even looking at it here, we're, we're looking directly at it, and uh, that it is, and I'm hopeless with figures, so I'm going to get this right now before I forget. I think it's 110 is it feet or metres uh, long and 60 metres wide. Oh, probably metres, isn't it? 110 metres long and 60 metres wide. Yeah. Biggest single-span glass house in the world. But it's tilted to the north to capture most, most of the sun. Yeah, so the northern edge is higher, so it's the, the whole glass house itself would be south-facing. Um, so you get the majority of the sun in there. So from, from early morning rise to late, late night sets, the sun is shining on it at all times. If we were to tilt it the other way, most of the, most of the internals would actually be in shade for the majority of the day. Right. Uh, so the fact that it's tilted that way has sort of amplified the sunlight. So it does skyrocket in temperature in there. But, um, but you know, I, I like hot temperature personally. I think that's why it often feels much sunnier in there as well. I mean, it is obviously a glass dome and all that. It always feels quite a happy, uh, positive space. And that yeah. might be part of that, I think. Yeah, it's it's quite nice working in. I, I struggle with the heat. Um, yeah. So in, in those those high temperatures, I'm not a big fan of going in there. But it's, it's a lovely area. You, you don't get sunburn in there as well, which is another nice thing. Why is that? I'm not sure if it's something to do with the glass taking away those harmful UV rays, but when I was in the Great Glass House, I never had sunburn from inside the Great Glass House. But the days that I was working outside, I had terrible sunburn. Well, well. Yeah. And um, a, a, a mystery for a lot of people is when they go round, they're often hearing this like, yeah. these big noises. Yeah. What's going on with all that then? Um, so the noises in the Great Glass House, predominant one is the fans. You'll yeah. hear the fans to keep good air circulation in there. Um, the other noise, which is the sort of the motor sounds are the windows opening um, so especially if you go around Chile which is uh, how to explain this is if you come in from the western entrance it's the furthest area yeah. um, there's some windows there which open automatically so when the temperature reaches a certain point they'll open when it drops below a certain point they'll close but it's also dependent on things like rainfall and wind and so if the wind picks up obviously you don't want windows open because the wind can catch them and just break them um, and again with the rainfall you don't really want rain going in so on certain days when it's it's sunny and warm, but at the same time quite windy or in typical Welsh fashion, all of the different weathers in the same day, they'll be opening and closing and opening and closing. And you'd be quite often to hear those. Oh, right. Okay. Opening. Is that driving nuts as a gardener? You get used to it after a while. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because, it, and it's interesting to think about the uh, underneath the great glass house, there's this like under this circular concourse mm. uh, that has all these big flashing uh, cabinets with computer control, this, that, and the other, and it feels like some sort of a set from some sci-fi movie yeah. set like decades ago, where people were probably hiding with guns, shooting yeah. at each other. It does and feel a bit around. like an episode of Star Trek, doesn't it, down there? <laughs> it does. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know it's um, it, it's a proper. It has been a very popular uh, thing for visitors to go around. We've done tours of people. Quite hard to organize. You can't do it in times of COVID, obviously, mm. but um. I think it'd be, you know, it's always good to sort of revive that. But it also kind of kind of helps everyone understand how complex the whole place is. Yeah. Because it's it's a very sustainable building, isn't it? I mean, it, it's worth saying it's, it's Norman Foster and Partners who, who uh, designed and built it. Mm. And um, there's quite a few sort of uh, what we think of as sustainable features on there. And one of them is water. 
Yes, Can you so there's, that? there's water capturing systems. So all the rain that lands on the great glasshouse is collected and then repurposed um, for things such as the water pool and watering systems and things like that, uh, which is it's fantastic, but it does lead to a lot of technology underneath there as well. A lot of people would look at the great glasshouse and think, oh, it's a big greenhouse. It's so much more than that. There's pumps for the water pools. There's the water saving system. There's the borehole that we take water from. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty advanced piece of kit, that. Okay, uh, and I love the story with the borehole. I'm, 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 do you know the story? I'm not, I'm not sure I do. The, 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 uh, this was told to me uh, a few years ago by um, the original director, Charlie Sturton. I've only met him once or twice. And, but um, I got the story about the, uh, uh, the when, when they were building the Great Glass House and indeed when they were building the whole Botanic Garden in the 1990s, they were very well aware that needed a water source uh, to uh, to give us water. Yeah. If we had to do all this off the mains, we'd probably go bust very quickly. Yes. And um, and that he got a lot of people with technical kit to come and like you know do all sorts of um, surveys around the site, and they weren't getting anywhere. Yeah. And then the guy turned up with his little stick and uh, his what do you call it? Oh, the dowsing rods. Divine, divining yeah. rods. Yeah. And uh, uh, he walked along the broadwalk and uh, just went a little bit to the right-hand side, and he said, dig there, and they went down, I think it's something like 200 foot, and they found water. Oh, wow. That's convenient, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you can see right now, there's a sort of like a drain top, and uh, our maintenance boys go inside it to do some repairs sometimes. Mm. I just think it's amazing. And yeah. I know that they found, uh, they put another borehole down last year, didn't they? To get they did, water. yeah. Um, more water for the Great Glass House, I think, that one, specifically. Um, we were There was a struggle with pressure for a while, so in the Great Glass House, um, when I was first starting my apprenticeship, you could only ever have three hoses on. Any more than three, and the pressure started to drop. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, that's been fixed now, I think. Right. Um, so what, what that meant is you, you were juggling hoses a lot, um, trying to get all of the areas watered right. And it was, it was quite an art form, getting used to the watering system in there, because just through 20 years of use and things having to be replaced, I don't think there's a single hose point in there which is the same as every uh, other hose point. Right, okay. So you need to... I, big learning curve is learning how to use the watering system in there and one of the big problems was on the hotter days when you wanted four or five hoses running you could only have three at maximum and even then the pressure was starting to struggle so they put a new borehole in to try and fix that problem um, and as far as i'm aware it has been definitely alleviated right yeah because uh, you know for um i've also really enjoyed seeing it's really kind of interest really interesting aspects of the, of the plantings in there the way that the soil has kind of over the years kind of gone down and down and compressed mm. and um so uh, over the last few years you guys have been um uh building up that soil again taking it out and putting in fresh soil which is quite a big a massive actually it always looks a really big job yeah but then you really see a massive a, a really significant improvement yeah so in 2018 james was doing um a huge area in australia yeah swinging a mattock in that heat yeah. He's a stronger man than I am, but he, yeah, they dug a huge area out and replaced the soil, um, and the soil level increased by a good two foot. Um, but after replanting, all of the plants shut off at a million miles an hour. It was fantastic, you know. I have done a few areas in there, and it is after twenty years of no sort of turning or digging the soil, it's it's really compacted down there. You need to dig down a long way, sieve out all of the stones, and then replace the soil. It's it's a big job, and it's a constant thing that's being redone. There's always an area of the glass house that's being replenished. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can understand that really because it's 
Uh, um, presumably the soil just settles. What creates the compaction? It's uh, soil settling as well, uh, is sort of the big thing. Uh, but also getting onto the site to do the watering, obviously you can't avoid it, but there is a certain amount of footfall on the beds and that's oh, not yeah. helping as well. Um, so yeah, after after a period of time, that just becomes too extreme. Also, it's good to re- replenish the nutrients and just improve the soil structure in general. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a big job. There's a lot of clay in there as well, which is not ideal. You normally want very free-draining, sort of nutrient-poor soil for the Mediterranean plants. So to have very water-retentive, quite nutrient-high clay is not the ideal option. Okay. So when you do redo a bed, it's not a simple matter of just replacing the top few inches. You go down a good two foot minimum. So, uh, you might be able to answer another uh, uh, thing for me as well here. Uh, one of our conservation volunteers called Peter. Um, Peter has got great interesting fungi. Mm-hmm. He takes great photos of all sorts of things as Peter. Um, but his interesting fungi, uh, he looks a lot in the great glasshouse and he keeps finding uh, fungi in there that should virtually never been recorded in Wales, let alone the UK before. Yeah. So um, how, how are they getting there? I'm not so sure, to be honest. Oh, um, okay. I'd imagine a, a number of them would probably come in from soil, uh, from plants that have been brought in. I'm not, I can't confirm or deny that, though. But if there's fungi that have never been recorded in Wales, likely there might have been one or two spores in a pot that's come in and gone into there and it's taken 20 years to develop. It's fungal spores, as you know, are very hard to control. Yeah, they are, they are more than microscopic; they're tiny. Um, so it's inevitable that there will be fungal spores in the air, maybe just blowing in, and they found the right environments in there. Okay, because it's worth no saying they've never done any harm that anyone can see at the moment, and um, uh, maybe they really like the hotter temperature. I mean, it's always about five degrees above ambient in there. Yeah, I think minimum temperature they try and keep is. Um, I think it's eight degrees, or it could be twelve, one of the two. But it's it's always it's always significantly warmer in that. So it is actually a different ecosystem anyway from outside. So yeah. it might not have been brought in. It might just have might have been in. in the air through the jet stream, found its way down here. It could Who be knows? anything. As you say, fungal spores are so light and small they'll travel for miles and miles and miles and miles. So it, it could have just blown in from a climate like that, maybe, right. and landed in there and gone, oh, I'm home, and just started growing because it is such a distinct environment in there. It's 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 not Wales at all in there. Yeah. It, it is a different It's a different part of the world under glass. My favourite fungi uh, that we've had in there is uh, these things called earth stars. I don't know if you know them, they're like puffballs. <laughs> but they have these kind of arms that come out from them and kind of lift them a little bit above the ground. A uh, bit like the, um, the the War of the Worlds, those sort of like big uh, giant creatures that are supposed to come in from Mars. Oh, yeah. You've seen the film. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but the... Uh, what was great about these is that they, they kind of would like these sort of firm balls for a long time. They're in the chilly area, and there's quite a lot of them. And um, you can't tell from when they're a firm ball what they're going to be. You just you think, oh, is it going to be an earth star? And I remember, uh, you know, I had all various fungi friends that came to have a look. And then um, and it's a bit like, uh, to give another cultural reference, a bit like quater bass. It's a bit like this ball that's kind of like a mystery. You're wondering what's going to happen to it one day and almost becomes a little bit scary after a while because you think it's not doing anything. And in fact, some of those balls didn't do anything for months and months and months. And then these arms appear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they uh, they release their spores. And the spores just seem to go a little bit further along in Chile. And for a little while, they're all over Chile. Mm. And then they all went again. And that was it. Yeah. End of story. Oh, that was a great little ride, that. Free entertainment, as I always say. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've got no idea what they were doing there, what was going on. But it's, it's one of the things I, I love about fungi, you just can't understand what the heck's going on. They're such a, an unknown subject, fungi. Yeah. They really are. Yeah, from, from my limited experience learning about fungi, it's it's a hornet's nest, it really is. Um, I know a few, um, so the birch polypore, or the, the razor strop. Yeah. And I know that fungi, but you can sharpen your knife with it. And it's fairly easy to identify. And then the um, uh, King Alfred's cake called the crab ball. I know yeah. that one, because um, I've used that as insect repellents before. When camping, if you take it off and put it by the fire to dry out and light it, it'll stay alight for three, four hours and repel the insects. So that, that's about my, my limit with fungi. As it comes to anything to do with eating, that's way out of my that's, uh, and I'm, I'm not per- taking that risk. Yeah, I personally stay away from that because it is too risky. Yeah. But um, uh, do, you, do you know, Ben, I mean, we're coming, slight, we're coming towards the, um, the dip in the fungi season now. And uh, it's a little bit sad. It's a bit like the end of the wildfire season in, in, in August, you know. You kind of, you know, you get a few sort of stragglers. But, you know, but, um, but there's a few come out. I mean, uh, in January. Yeah these wonderful ones called the elf caps which come out in in, in general vivid red and you get them all over this place so i'm i'm looking forward to them already mm. but um one thing you're saying about the birch uh, the birch polypore we've got some wonderful himalayan bir- uh, birches in the outer double wall garden mm-hmm. uh which i absolutely love i love I, whoever came up with that idea of planting the long dead really nice because they're really developing nicely yeah. wonderful white bark but they're also developing a really nice sort of mycorrhizal relationship with certain fungi. Particularly on the far side is where you find a lot of fungi now. And um, I'm desperate to see some fly agarics on site. Yeah. I've never actually found a fly agaric, which are those red fungi with white spots that kind of associate with winter and, and mythicalness yeah. and all sorts of great things. And I've that they're associate they grow with birch or pine. And I have brought in between you and me and the garden wall i brought in fly agaric mushrooms and i've scattered what i hope to be the spores under those himalayan balsams and i've also done it under the pine trees in the wallace garden because we've got a really nice mm. display there of the evolution of conifers uh but nothing's come up yet and maybe it's a bit too blunt to too long i'm not sure i mean I've never had much success growing mushrooms. I've never really tried, to be honest. But in my experience, mushrooms, they're never there when you want them. And then as soon as you're not looking for them, they're there. That's they're exactly everywhere. right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's the amount of times I've been camping and looking for a cramp ball, never been able to find one. As soon as I go back and sort of light a, a citronella stick or something else to get rid of the insects, I look up and there's a cramp ball right there. It, it's just the way they are. Um, it is. Although I've got, I've got to be, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm quite an optimistic guy, but... One little sad feature about the cramp balls or the King Alfred's cakes, as you call them, is I think we'll be seeing significantly less of them eventually in our countryside because they're particularly associated with ash trees. Yes, that is a, a real sadness, actually. Yeah, um, so we'll probably get a whole load of them soon as all the ash trees come down either naturally or, or are cut down uh, and there'll be a bit of rotting going on. But I think in the long term, their numbers will you know, yeah. become a, quite an unusual fungi, yeah. I think, maybe. I'm not sure what other species they're commonly found. I've seen them on willow. They're probably on all sorts of things, but it's mainly ash. Yeah, I've they? mainly seen them on ash. Um, that's where I tend to look for them. I only really look on the ash trees because they're so common there. Yeah. Um, but I suppose hopefully they'll be able to um, survive this on secondary species. And then when the ash do come back, and I'm not optimist, I think they will come back, whether they're the same species we've got now or a different one, Yeah. they should be able to just pop back over to that, hopefully. Yeah. Um, 
the Grow in the Future project put on some really great uh, talks last January in the uh, Principality House, and uh, mainly about trees. And we had uh, um, Professor Mary Gagan from Swansea University came and, and gave a talk about the research she'd been doing on dating trees. Mm. It's a really, really interesting talk. And I can't, you know, I can't remember all the details of that, but one thing that really struck me from one of the talks is that she'd been looking at certain trees that were hundreds and hundreds of years old. And she noticed in some of them that their, um, their growth period was really stunted mm. for like 100 years or so. And, uh, and I think, I hope I've got this right, from the talk she gave, she's saying, like, this is probably when they were being attacked by certain um, diseases. Oh, that's interesting. And they spent up to 100 years fighting it off oh, wow. and getting better again. Yeah. And it's because we're human beings. We live for, you know, 70, 80, 90 years or whatever. We're lucky. Um, our time period, we think the whole world's going to pop sometimes. But in nature, yeah. it's a much slower, longer story. And I hope that's the same with our ash trees. I suppose when your lifespan's 300 years, you can afford to take 100 years out to fix a problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit alien for us to think of, think of things that way. It is. Um, but, you know, but in, you know in, in, in the short term, my real worry is our ash tree on the uh, Millennium Square. Mm. Got a wonderful old ash tree there. Really beautiful. Uh, uh, but this year you can really see it's suffering from the ash dieback. Yeah. And um, I, I, it must be a real pressure on our horticultural team uh, because you, the first priority over everything else is uh, business safety. safety. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I've seen this in um, when I go to National Trust sites. A lot of trees there have been uh, sort of either cut down or greatly modified yeah. on the public access routes. And uh, I mean, I haven't spoken to anyone here about that history. But our, our, our conservation volunteers monitor. You know, it's one of the trees they monitor. But um, it's uh, it's a real shame that because unfortunately, due to its location, um, it's a huge pull for the public. They love sitting underneath it. Yeah. But also due to its location, if you decided to go down the route of cordoning it off, you're taking off half a path with it as well, just because of the the way it's overgrowing the path uh, as you come up from the double yeah. wall garden. So I'm not sure how that's going to be dealt with. It's, yeah. I mean, fingers crossed. Best case scenario, next year it comes back and it looks like there's nothing on there. Well, we have been doing so. Uh, we've been collecting uh, 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 ash dieback fungus spores mm -hmm. for uh, uh, a chap who's doing a PhD for forest research called Matt Coombs. And uh, we've been doing this with the help of the conservation volunteers for the last three years. And we've also been collecting samples of the fungus. Uh, we'll be collecting leaves this, this uh, autumn. And um, Matt's doing loads of research. He's trying to understand the biology of the actual fung fruiting body. Mm. <coughs> but one of the things Matt was saying that this year uh, a lot of people have been reporting that a lot of what seemed like seemingly dead ash trees are suddenly seem to come to life again this year now mm. that could be a last hurrah you know obviously, yeah. I can see lots of ash trees putting out those are keys and things like that mm. but again who knows you know it's it's so quick all this change yeah and isn't it interesting that with um you know, for the ash trees, they're having their own pandemic, aren't they? You know, they to are. go with our own human pandemic. It's just a lot slower. It's just a lot yeah. slower. Um, it's, yeah. It is a real shame to see. And there is, I mean, ash is one of the most common trees in the country. And it's, it's a real shame driving around uh, the country roads around here and seeing all the orange sprays. You know, obviously a tree inspector's gone through and noted all of the ash trees which are showing dieback. 
and hit them with an orange spray so cutting companies can then come in and see which ones are the dangerous ones. Or an orange ribbon, which is almost like makes you think of the plague from the Middle Ages. Yeah, I know. And it's... Because obviously I've known Ash Dieback's a thing for a while. Uh, I was driving around and I was thinking, okay, there's, there's a few here showing. But as soon as I actually started driving around and noticing the orange ribbons, it's it's every other tree, basically. Um, yeah. I think most of that is because, obviously, if they do fall, they're falling on a road. Whether the ash trees in the depths of woodlands, which very rarely get walked to, there's, nothing's probably going to happen to them. It's probably best to leave them be and see what happens in nature's way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, just because of the way that we've populated the landscape, there is a lot of trees which are going to have to come down because if they don't come down when we tell them to, they're going to come down when they do. Yeah. And that's a that's an issue, unfortunately. Am I right that ash are one of those trees that, that suddenly drop limbs? Are they? They tend to just they snap and drop, um, which is another real issue. If it was something else which sort of crumbled, it, it, it would still be an issue. Obviously, don't get me wrong, but there, there's that little bit of leeway that if something has the limb has died, chances are it's going to crumble from the end. It's still better to get it down, but it's not it's not as essential. But with ash, if a limb has died off, there's the potential that four ton of wood could just drop at a moment's notice. And there's, there's very few people who are going to come out of that unscathed. So yeah. that's, that's the real issue. From, from a public safety point of view, you take them down. Um, but from my own personal opinion, would be it'd be great if we could keep them all. It would be great. I, obviously, we can't. I realise that we can't. But it would be lovely to just leave them be and see if they can figure it out on themselves. In, in the history of all of this sort of stuff, things have always gone better when we haven't meddled. Yeah. But such yeah. is the way, unfortunately. We can't do that. I know that there used to be a very big old uh, oak tree in uh, Boulder Garden, and it's an oak tree that you could see on, there was an engraving of the old Middleton estate here from uh, the 1850s, I think it was, the 40s, and uh, you could see the oak tree on that. Uh, and uh, at about, I don't know, a few years ago, it, it, it was chopped down. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, that's just too overcautious, that's... Do you know what? They knew what they're doing because yeah. I went and had a look at it afterwards, and this tree stump. Because outside to me it looked fine, but I looked at the tree stump and it was rotted to death. And so yeah. It was going to come down. Yeah. You know, and, and that and that's great that you have people here who actually understand what what they're doing. Oh yeah, much more than um, I do. When I, when I was an apprenticeship, I, I went on a tree inspection and survey course, um, just sort of a very brief introduction to the topic. And part of it was never take it as it looks. If if you walk up to a tree and it looks fine, they have a little hammer and you, you hit it and you can hear the, the hollow rebound. Oh yeah. And he there was a couple of trees on site that he took us to and he hit them with a hammer and I've been sitting there thinking, oh it looks alright. As soon as he hit them it wasn't a nice woody knock. It was sort of nice oh dear. Okay, yeah. It's as much as it looks fine on the outside, on the inside that's rock to pieces. Um, oh. so I've got a lot of trust for everyone who does anything like that. Um, but it, it as I say it is a shame watching them come down but it's it's safer. It is just public safety. So. Yeah, the, the, uh, a couple of years ago as well, there was there was a lovely uh, developing lime tree. I forgot what type of variety it was. Uh, down by our um, circle of decision, sort of along the Broadwalk, and I uh, walked past it one day, and it was aflame with this beautiful, beautiful orange fungus called a velvet shank. That mm. was kind of like um, just kind of spewing out of the uh, out of the trunk. It just looked really, really gorgeous. And uh, and velvet shank is actually one of the latest sort of uh, fruiting fungi. And I remember chatting to uh, someone from the Horty team. I said, "Oh, that's really interesting seeing that." Uh, 
a week later, that poor line stream was cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness me! I felt, I felt. Oh no! I should have kept my mouth shut. But yeah. I did go and look at the trunk again, and yes, yeah. it was. It was all rotten again. Yeah, it's, you know, fungus, fungus are a, a good indicator that something's not right with the tree. In some situations, you know, obviously some fungus live quite happily. Yeah, um, but yeah, especially the the wood rotting ones, you you've got to be careful. If you start seeing big fruiting bodies flying up all over a tree, chances are that tree's about to come down. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe I, I shouldn't. You know, I should I shouldn't keep things to myself like that because that could be dangerous. So. Especially with a, a high traffic area like that. Um, yeah. If it was out in the middle of, you know, one of the woods somewhere where nobody ever really goes, you'll only ever see it once every five years. Maybe it's not so much of an issue. But on an area like the Broadwalk, where there's everyone who comes to the garden walk did that walked underneath that tree, that's a, a bit of a risk, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can remember that tree, and it was a shame to come down, but I can remember looking at the stump as well, and just thinking, oof, lucky that one came down then, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a real shame, but unfortunately that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I'm an optimist. I think for the future there's definitely, we're going to be fine. Ash will come back. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, I'll happily take that all. <laughs> yeah. Whether we can see it, I don't know. Anyway, um, thank you very much for listening to us this week. Um, yeah, have you got anything else you wanted to add? Or no, we'll, we'll uh, see you next week. Um, have a nice week and enjoy the first week of December. Okay, cheers. Ta-da.